I don't want to set the world on fire, honey. I love you too much. I just want to start a great big flame down in your heart. You see, way down inside of me, darling, I have only one desire, and that one desire is you. And I know nobody else ain't going to do. Those are lyrics from I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire by the Ink Spots, which is featured in the movie we're going to be talking about on today's episode of the Pink Smoke podcast, Toby Hooper's Spontaneous Combustion from 1990. Hello, everybody. I'm John Cribbs. I'm joined by Christopher Funderburg. And today we have a very special guest, a man who is intimately familiar with this movie we're going to be talking about because he worked on it. He was there every single day of the production. He saw through post-production and he has lived with this film ever since uh, it came out. And his name is Mr. Stan Giese. Hello, Stan. How are you today? I'm very good. Thanks, guys. Uh, Thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. Yeah, thank you for doing the show. John and I are, are uh, massive Toby Hooper fans. Sort of As notori- am I. Yes, notoriously so. And, uh, you know, I wanted to thank you. Also, I know you were a big help to John when he was preparing that audio commentary for I'm Dangerous Tonight. Uh, that he he tapped a lot of your information and knowledge on that one as well. That so, was very kind of him. <laughs> that was very kind of you. Very kind we, of we, you. Yeah, <laughs> we wanted to get you on the show and and talk some more about uh, a director that I think is both understood to be one of the horror greats and at the same time underappreciated and disrespected. So we always uh, just want to give him more air and and talk about him and and all that. So thank you for coming on. Oh, very happy to be here. And I think uh, I agree. You know, Toby's had a very controversial career. Um, high highs, low lows. Um, it's, it's interesting to attempt to, you know, bring it all together and understand his, you know, understand his output uh, from beginning to end. And I, I see a lot of uh, constants in his yes. career um, that I think a lot of people have missed. And that kind of one of those is the reason why people misunderstand this film so much. Um, I think Toby was dedicated to confounding expectations. And that's exactly what he does in virtually every film. This one in particular. People come in expecting something. I'll tell you something. When I first heard that um, Toby was doing a film called Spontaneous Combustion, what came to mind was um, some kind of a police procedural with a grisly detective um, you know, investigating a series of mysterious, fiery deaths. So, so more like the Mangler. Well, yeah, I expected something more conventional, which is absurd. <laughs> Why would anyone expect conventional from Toby? But what I didn't expect was um, a uh, a thoughtful story of of uh, the loss of identity, um, an indictment of the military-industrial complex, a cautionary tale about. Um, toying with nuclear power, all kind of wrapped up in a, an impossibly complex conspiracy theory. Uh, it's not the, what I expected. It's the thing I'd say about this movie is that it's deceptively simple plot-wise, but it's so complicated at the same time in terms of just the huge themes that I think he wants to tackle. And it's it's a lot packed into one kind of small movie. Um, but Absolutely. just kind of to, to talk about Toby's career because I think a lot of his films have enjoyed re- reappraisals recently. Fun House, Life Force, Texas Chainsaw 2, uh, even Eaton Alive and Mangler have their champions, but I feel like Spontaneous Combustion still feels like the one that hasn't had a proper second act, despite getting huge props from uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, which we'll mention later on. 
but it feels like most people, even huge Toby Hooper fans, still this one is kind of, you know, the 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 redheaded stepchild of his filmography in a lot of ways. Um, Stan, can you tell us when Toby went into this production in the late 80s, where was he career-wise? Like kind of come, coming off of the Canon films and everything, kind of kind of put us in place of where, where he was at the time. Well, it's interesting because to me, in retrospect, the Canon films was you know, a pinnacle of his career. At the time, however, you know, coming off that kind of manufactured controversy about Poltergeist. And the three um, canon films were Invaders from Mars, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and Life Force, just correct. for listeners. Correct. And I think, just as you were saying, all, all three of those films have been um, rediscovered, re-examined, and reappreciated. And I think they all have a much higher um, uh, place in his filmography than anybody would have anticipated at the time. But at the time, you know, I won't exactly say that Toby couldn't get arrested, but he didn't have the kinds of opportunities you might expect. When I was a teenager, a college age, life force was a joke. You know what I mean? It was a movie <laughs> I loved, but it was, if you mentioned it to people who had seen it, it was a joke. It was a punchline. It was not something that anybody took seriously. And I remember that very vividly. I think a lot of people like John and I who came up with that movie in some way have helped to, to rebuild its, its reputation. But unquestionably, I can see when you're saying he couldn't get arrested, those movies, even Texas Chainsaw 2, which was probably the best liked of the three initially, was not seen as being on the level with his best work, I don't think. I again, I think um, I'm not the first to say this. I think Life Force is a misunderstood masterpiece. Yeah. I think that if it had been titled Space Vampires, as it was intended, it would have reached its core audience uh, certainly more quickly. I think people would have been attuned to what it really was about. Um, but instead, Life Force, I, I don't know, somehow it's tepid compared yeah. to the film. That, so people didn't expect, again, it's this concept of dashing expectations. And people didn't expect what they got. Of course, who would expect that anyway? <laughs> <laughs> so he makes these three films. They're all flops at the box office. Nobody is kind of praising them critically. Uh, so where is he at now? I mean, where does he go to make spontaneous combustion? Where does he go to set the, up the production? Well, I have to be honest. I don't really understand. Uh, I don't know the financing of the film. I've heard tell that um, he invested some of his personal funds in the film. Can't verify that, don't know for certain. Um, I have to say, I mean, it's not like he wasn't working. I think he did uh, an episode of The Equalizer during that period. He had a couple of uh, projects in development, something called Floaters, I believe. Um, he did the Amazing Stories episode. So it wasn't like he wasn't working, but he was kind of banished to the hinterlands. And I think he was anxious to get back uh, on the horse and uh, direct a feature film. So somehow he um, concocted a production company and uh, teamed up with uh, Jim Rogers, who I believe was the financier, certainly producer, and Jerry Lambert, who he had worked with on Chainsaw Massacre 2 um, as a co-composer. And Jerry somehow got promoted to a producer. And they, they financed that. They financed the film somehow. Um, I'd also like to point out that I think um, Spontaneous, uh, with the exception of Chainsaw Massacre and Mangler, is the only film where Toby is credited as a co-screenwriter. Mm, so it's yeah. a very personal vision for him. I think it's very particular to his particularity, to his sense of 
madness. I think that's a constant throughout his, his uh, career as well, the sense of madness. And certainly Sam Kramer goes quite mad. <laughs> In the movie, yeah. Let me yes. let me run through the plot real quick, just for uh, you know, listeners. Yeah, I want to um, hear this. Uh, it's <laughs> it's funny because Stan, you've uh, uh, written a book about your experience on the production, and one of the things I really love that you mentioned, and it's called Shard Remains. I should uh, mention uh, is that you say that Toby considered this more of a metaphysical thriller than a horror movie, which I think is really interesting way to look at it. Because obviously, mm-hmm. go into it, Toby Hooper, his name comes up, and uh, you know, it's about people being set on fire and you think horror movie, but this really is a lot more than that. Well, it certainly has elements of horror, but that's what he said to me. Um, I certainly agreed. We referred to it on the set as um, as his Cronenberg film. And oh, I see I echoes sure. of Cronenberg's, you know, body horror attitude and and even, you know, his his uh, uh, his style, his compositional style in this film. Although I don't think it's conscious on the part of Toby. Mm-hmm. Um it so, yeah, a certain I think, scanner's flavor to it i think you know would be a, to, yes to some of it and, and, and then to me true. watching it this time it struck me as primarily a romance this time especially the climax that it builds up to and everything and i know that you know there's certainly uh a tradition of romances in horror movies but there's much more of an emphasis on the connection between these two main characters than you normally get in horror films, you know, which I think in a roundabout way actually ties it to Cronenberg in a different way that are about his films are about the relationship between men and women. Once he really becomes Cronenberg with like dead ringers and crash that it becomes about not romance, but man woman interactions. And I can sort of see it from that angle as well. Or man well, and Chinese spy and drag, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, f- feminine energy, masculine energy uh, interactions, divorced from physical bodies. How about that? Perfect. For me, the, the romance aspect of the film is secondary to the betrayal aspect of the film. Yeah. I mean, the fact is, but, this man, but every... what is a romance but a betrayal? I'm going to get cynical now. <laughs> I know. Well, okay. you know, I, I think you make a point. You make a good point. We all have to lie to our significant others um just to get through the day sometimes yeah i'm glad you're on the record with that (laughs) (laughs) okay let me let me run through this plot here real quick so the film opens in 1955 uh when a wholesome married couple have been enlisted in project samson which is a government experiment meant to uh, test whether the couple can survive an atomic blast in their new and improved fallout shelter when in truth the couple have actually been injected with a serum developed to build up tolerance to nanothermites in the bloodstream. They're dubbed the first nuclear family. They survived the blast, after which it's revealed that the wife is expecting. And on the 10th anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing, uh, she gives birth to a boy named David. That same day, mom and dad are exposed to mercury from a broken thermometer. Flames shoot from their bodies and they horrifically explode in each other's arms. Cut to 34 years later to the day, we meet Sam, who is a likable high school teacher played by the great Brad DeReef who, curiously enough, has the same cigarette burn birthmark on the back of his hand as the baby David. Sam seems fairly happy-go-lucky when we meet him. He's divorced, but he's three months into a new relationship with a fellow teacher named Lisa, played by Cynthia Bain. But people around Sam are dying. They're burning to death in what is being categorized as freak accidents. And Sam himself is uh, starting to experience strange biological abnormalities. Electrical shocks, fire bursting from lesions on his arm smoke coming off him like the tip of a cigar 
What we learn is that Sam is indeed the child of the nuclear couple, renamed, raised, and constantly observed by government agents involved with the Samson project, and that corresponding to the activation of the local Trinidad power plant, he has been activated and is headed for a full meltdown. Uh, now, Stan, you had mentioned that this was the first uh, screenplay that Toby was uh, accredited on since Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, what about this film was, do you think is personal to him? Like really feels like the story he had to tell, like it was his baby. Hmm, that's an interesting question. I think uh, if you look at most of his films, there's a social um, aspect to it. There's uh, social criticism, you know, it's in Chainsaw, it's in um, Eaten Alive, certainly. And I think he's, uh, he's taking on the Reagan era in this film. And you know the son, the the sins of the fathers visited on the sons, you know, through the military-industrial complex. And that's something that he, you know, as a lifelong liberal, um, that's something that he felt very strongly about. And I think more than the romance, um, that was his point. Uh, as you know, uh, as I said earlier, cautioning against uh, getting too. Um, I don't know, being being too laid back about allowing the government to take hold of our freedoms, liberties, uh, and that's, our defense. That's interesting because when we meet uh, Sam in the present day, uh, there's a lot of protests going on in the background at the school and around the town for you know setting up this new uh, power plant and letting it go live. And he in particular seems adamant uh, about you know his position against this thing. And he even the night before it had an, an argument with one of his friends about it which we find out later got so heated that she literally burned to death because he was so upset. <laughs> um, I love that. I love that about Toby. I love. I think that's that... meant to be a bit ironic. You know, I think he's, so. He's yeah. Being so, you know, <laughs> so, uh, you know, vested against it. And yet, you know, it's essentially part and parcel of his entire life story. Well, isn't that, the, isn't that part of the idea with a lot of Toby Hooper's films is that you can't separate the, um, like the history of what's happened from the person you are, that if you're an American, you're built on the nuclear bomb in some ways, you know, that, that literally it's down in your DNA and you can say you're against it, but our country still dropped nuclear weapons on civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and ended the war and won the war and created the baby boom that produced Sam right? By winning that war, he's literally a product of it, even without the specific narrative of the film. Yeah, that's some pretty heady thinking for a tiny little horror film. <laughs> I don't you know? think he makes tiny little horror films. I, I agree, I, but... <laughs> I think he makes movies, if, the, if you had to describe the trouble he runs into, is that he's so smart and I think that a lot of times he doesn't have an apparatus around him to support his intelligence. I don't think he's surrounded by producers and screenwriters and actors a lot of the time who understand how intelligent his work is, you know? I agree, they just don't get it. Yeah, especially one of this the script, yeah. which was so complex, can so I ask complicated. You, can I ask you the screenwriter on it, uh, that co-screenwriter, uh, Howard Goldberg, he has very few credits. What can you tell us about him, how he came to the project and what his relationship with, with Toby was? Do you know? Um, very little. Uh, I met him yeah. exactly once. I think he visited the set once. Um, I suspect that his, uh, and I don't mean to be 
insulting or to denigrate his contributions. But I think he was primarily a transcriber. You know, um, Toby would speak with him. He'd produce some pages. They'd discuss it. He'd produce more pages. Uh, I think it's Toby's baby. Yeah. Um, well, but there's he certainly nothing else. Scribe. In, yeah, in Goldberg's filmography to suggest anything like this. <laughs> yeah, and I don't I know did. where he came from. Like I said, he yeah. wasn't someone who hung out. Um, I had never met him before. And I don't know what happened. He was a perfectly charming fellow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's funny. I just from reading your book and like learning about how many changes got made just on set, just inspirations that would kind of come and lines that would get added and suggested by actors. And, you know, that, that uh, Hooper thought was a great idea to include. It's obvious that, you know, this thing was very organic in its making, right. That like it was actually being, changed and kind of repurposed like as it was going well that's been my experience with toby um he's always open to suggestion especially from actors uh, or creative types he uh he wanted it to be as good as possible he had his ears open but he knew what he wanted sounds like a cliche um <laughs> but he had a very clear idea of what he wanted um however he he would bend with the wind um there's a good maybe a good example is john cypher uh who played marsh who was a very interesting character himself. Um, he had some difficulty in the scene where he visits Nina's home and he basically murders her. Um, and he has a line about the DX sanction and Mr. Lullaby come for the wrong old lady. And he somehow couldn't get his head around those words unless it was explicit or specified. I mean, they, they were changed in the film to the death sanction and the Grim Reaper visit the wrong old lady. So Toby was willing to, you know, give a little to make the uh, performer comfortable. And I love how you described the making of that scene too in your book, uh, where it was originally Cypher. It's was a good walking. book. Yeah, so she, <laughs> it is a very good book, absolutely. Um, Nina, played by Melinda Dillon, is, was his, his nuclear nanny, right? From when he was uh, a baby, uh, he was, she was best friends with his parents and uh, then she kind of disappeared for a while and thought he was dead. And then, he, you know, she re realizes he's out there and reaches out to him. He comes to see her. And so Cypher is sent to kill her and he shoots her with the gas and she's lying there fly dying on the floor. The way you describe it in your book as originally filmed was that he was kind of walking around monologuing as she was dying. But then when they came back and they shot it again, after watching your video that you shot, Toby right. realized this is not the way this, this scene, sh uh, scene should be staged. And so he changed it to what it is now, which is beautiful because it's Cypher lying down on the floor next to her. And it becomes this very intimate moment of him watching this woman die. It's so creepy. I love that scene. Well, first of all, I love Melinda Dillon. She is fantastic in the film. Uh, she's a lovely woman. Uh, that whole sequence in her home is very tender. Um, but I also love the humor of uh, Marsh's character as he walks in. He seems to love apparatus. He has that bizarre that ridiculous uh, face mask gas on. mask. Yes, yeah. and later on he has the you know the bright orange gloves and the bright green goggles. Um, he's kind of a figure of fun, but he's incredibly sinister. I, I mentioned to a friend earlier when we were watching the film that he he looms. Hmm. He walks into a scene and he looms everywhere. He looms over everything. It's true, absolutely. <laughs> now, Stan, just real quick before we get on another tangent, can you tell us a little bit of your background and how you know Toby Hooper and where you're coming from on this? I think we know, so we might have jumped ahead of that a little bit. But if you could just explain it, tell us who you are. Sure. <laughs> Nothing special. Um, 
Well, I'm a writer and an artist. Uh, I worked in the film industry with some regularity through the 80s and 90s. Um, I ran the very first video store in the San Fernando Valley back oh, in the really? early 80s for what, whatever that's worth. I think that <laughs> gives me street cred. It does. What was it called? It was called uh, Vidion. Interesting. Quite awkwardly called Vidion. Um, so I had a good friend named Scott Holton. He was a publicist and he had been the um, post-production publicist on Life Force. And so as a result of knowing him, I got invited to the, uh, the premiere preview screening of Life Force at 20th Century Fox, which is where I first caught a glimpse of Toby. Um, also through Scott, um, my good friend, Eric Lasher, who you may or may not have heard of, he worked on many of Toby's films as a still photographer. Um, he got engaged um, on Invaders from Mars. And so we had free reign on the set. I used to spend a lot of time on that set. And I was even engaged as a, uh, an extra. I was one of the hundreds of Marines that stormed the hillside. Oh. <laughs> uh, three days. Bossed around by uh, Dale Dye, right? Dale Dye was awesome. He was great. He, uh, it was great to see him again on Spontaneous. He plays the general mm -hmm. in Spontaneous Combustion. Um, he was uh, the military advisor on the film. And uh, this was just prior to uh, traveling to Thailand, I think, to shoot Platoon, mm. uh, which of course became this huge phenomenon. He was also the military advisor on that. Uh, Despite not being as good as Invaders from Mars. Terrific, correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from there, I got, to, I got to know Toby a little bit. Eric got to know Toby quite well and they bonded <laughs> on Invaders from Mars. Um, Eric and Scott both traveled to uh, Texas to work on Chainsaw Massacre 2. Uh, I sadly was stuck here in LA, but when they come back, um, Eric had formed quite a friendship with Toby and with his son, Tony. Um, I kind of became part of this extended family. We spent a lot of time at the house, got to know one another. And when Spontaneous came around, uh, Eric and I kind of pitched the idea to Tony, excuse me, to Toby, that um, I joined the crew as a videographer and a journalist with the you know, the intention being to write a book about the making of the film. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, the film was not well received. And so there was little demand for a book. Um, but as time went by, it, it never, you know, it was never far from my thoughts. And finally, when I had the time to do it, hmm, six or eight years ago, I sat down and wrote the book. And subsequent it's to that, I, I served... Uh, primarily the same function on I'm Dangerous Tonight, uh, the pilot for um, Norman. Uh, I helped Tony assemble the model for the Mangler. Yeah. You know, the design on which the, the Mangler is based. Um, and I've done, you know, hung out on a lot of the sets and uh, occasionally stepped up and shot some behind the scenes video whenever necessary. Excellent. And the book is just a fantastic read. It's so obvious in each chapter how much you enjoy your time there and how much, you know, you integrated yourself into this production. Uh, so, I mean, I just feel nothing but envy for you reading the book and just imagining what a thrill it must've been to like work with the, with this crew and these actors and getting to see this thing come together. Well, I appreciate that, uh, that I was able to convey my enthusiasm. Um, it was my first experience working on uh, a feature film. And uh, as time goes on, and I think it shows in the book, um, I got more and more involved. Um, I, I 
you know, I ran lights, I did special effects, I, I puppeteered some of the uh, uh, mechanical men that are in flames. I, I took part in any number of, of activities. I wasn't, well, I, we'll get to that later. Uh, more to come. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So yeah, so back to the movie. Um, it, it's funny too, just to imagine you seeing it come together because this is a weird, just, I have to say it's a, it's a weird movie. It's a so gloriously, weird. gloriously yes. weird movie. And I know a lot of that has to do with some post-production, you know, uh, you know, meddling and whatnot. But as it is, it's just, it's, it's just fascinating to revisit it every time because I think I noticed something different every time. I certainly uh, do. Like I said, I just watched it today and I saw things um, that just struck me as new. Um, I agree. It's structured quite unusually. Um but that's by design. Yeah. You know, I, I think, yeah, there were some, uh, you said meddling. Uh, I don't exactly think that's what it was, but there were some changes. I was, I was grappling for a word, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's adjustments, that's what I meant, adjustments. Adjustments, yeah. Um, there were some changes made. Uh, I wasn't keen on a lot of them, but uh, I also wasn't consulted. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we all dove wholeheartedly into it and i think I nobody said hold on why. hold on someone gets stay on the phone make sure this is okay <laughs> <laughs> well i have a few i have a few examples of things where i pointed something out and uh well <laughs> uh let's just say that i was i was um disavowed of my uh difficulties can i say the one thing about the movie that i wish was different because i really like that these there are characters who kind of come into the film and leave the film and are kind of in the background and that Brad Dourif's character Sam always has this reaction to them like how do you, who are you how do you know me and and then we don't know how they know him and it's all very foggy I think for like a conspiracy thriller like this that's perfect I think it's everyone's really cool a potential have, conspirator yeah to have this complete vagary as to who everyone's role is in this I really like that about the film the one thing. I wish was different. Uh, Lisa's character, who he's been dating for three months, and so he they have kind of a relationship going, and then it kind of becomes revealed later on that she's involved with these government guys, innocently or not. And I kind of wish we were introduced to her for the first time, that they were coming together for the first time. Because another thing you said in your book um, that I really like, you said thematically, Sam is the kindling, Lisa is the flame. You know, there's something about their relationship that sets this whole thing off. Did I say and that? You did, yeah. That's brilliant. <laughs> it is. It's great. I love it. You should write that down. <laughs> um, Let me say so, this. I think that that plays out in their costuming, too, because he is, if you look at how he's dressed, he has an ash-colored jacket and beige kind of kindling-like uh, clothing, shirt and pants. She is in flame colors. Very bright. You know, lavender and red. Um, and she has a, 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 a boutonniere, a lapel pin uh, that was especially made for her for this film by the costumer, Julia Gombert. And it's, it's a bit of a spark. And I yeah. think she's the spark and he's the kindling. Absolutely. She even has that gigantic neon phone that, you know, is impossible to miss, you know. Oh, my, the neon in this film. The neon in this film is... is <laughs> wonderful and and boy i could do a treatise on color theory of this film um i could go on for hours because the color in this film is spectacular and i think toby had been 
really exploring that more and more. If you look at Funhouse, um, Life Force is like Planet of the Vampires, super bright, candy colored, Invaders from Mars, very much, you know, a kid's view of the world, candy coated, candy colored, uh, Chainsaw Massacre. And so color is an important aspect of oh, his approach. Yeah, Eaten Alive is amazing. Look, Absolutely. I think it's something that, I think incredible. it's something that because of the nature of his films had been, you know, ignored yeah. uh, or not noticed. And this but movie in particular carries the emotion. Yeah, the blue that that he has that very consistent metaphysical glowing blue that he uses in a lot of his movies. When there's a metaphysical in element introduced, it's like this glowing blue color. And this movie gets bluer the more it goes until eventually you have the blue light with the hand reaching up out of it to save her from the flame at the end. You know this. Sort That's of exactly right. In death. Fact, the whole uh, sequence in Olander's uh, foyer. Yep. You know, is draped in blue. And that's when, like, the mysteries of the universe are being revealed to him for the first time, too. Correct. That it's, that it's like when you say it's a metaphysical thriller, metaphysical horror film, that's unquestionably, if you look at all of his movies, you know that's true, because the blue is there, and the blue, I would say, <laughs> figures more prominently in this film than any of his other films. A lot of the times, it's a single prop or a single moment, sort of a very quick glimpse behind the curtain, you know, like at the end of Poltergeist or uh, in Salem's Lot, that you have these sort of very intensely brief blue sequences, whereas this has like 15 minutes that's fucking blue yes. in it. So um, can I ask you just a, uh, a question uh, about uh, the budget of this movie because one of the things that pains me about this movie knowing a little about filmmaking is I can see moments where it feels like they just didn't where they're really trying to work the budget in some ways and I was wondering if that's actually true or not like the fancy restaurant they're supposed to be meeting at that has like stairs running down it and looks like it was possibly shot in the hallway where they filmed the college hallway stairwell, you know? There's just a few moments where it looks like its budget has been pushed to the limit, to the absolute limit, or well, talk about reading into that? Well, no, um, it was a very low budget film. I believe, um, and don't quote me on this, I think it was about four and a half million. Okay. Um, which is not, you know, that's nothing not to sneeze at. Yeah. Um, but with that effects heavy, that a lot of that is going to dry Correct. up very quickly. Correct. I mean, he had a very uh, tight effects budget, um, but Steve Brooks, who uh, was the uh, video effect, excuse me, the uh, visual effects supervisor, I think he did miracles with yeah. what he had. It, the flame um, stuff looks incredible. It looks so unbelievably good. And yes. even, even when the seams show just a little bit, it still looks great. You know, even when you can... Most of the effect shots, I look at them and I go, oh, I don't know how they got that. You know, there's a lot of them where I go, I'm not sure what's practical. I'm not sure what's real. And then there are a few where you'll say, oh, well, that's a superimposition, you know, but it still looks great. You know, well, there's a lot of them that are both, you know, they're yeah. practical there and then they're enhanced by a visual effect. Yeah, uh, I think Steve did wonders. He he supervised the the flames at the opening of the film, you know, the, the opening titles. They were Which beautiful. Again, and recalls the, the uh, opening of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which opens with the sunspots and the yes. flames. And yes. Yeah. I'm not sure that was intentional, but um, yeah, I think that sets the tone. 
on I, I'm always struck very much by watching it just recently um, by the violence of the flames, by yes. the explosive nature. It's not just like someone catches fire or somebody's in flames. They, they are literally bursting yeah. with flames from within. Uh, and that's shocking uh, and, uh, and somehow delightful. It is. It reminds me of, in, uh, I don't know if you've seen the Dario Gento film Tenebre, where the woman gets her forearm lopped off through an axe comes through a window and she sort of sprays it against the wall yes. <laughs> like the blood geyser. And it's a very intense and beautiful moment and it's strange in its intense beauty. But like by virtue of it's a blood spurt, it can't go on for four minutes like the flames in this do. He's sort of figured out a way to extend the like terrible awe of that moment to like four minutes because people because the flames sustain themselves you know it's yes. not just a geyser it gives you the same feeling as a geyser of blood but it's a geyser of flame and it can go on so much longer yeah they're not burning out it's not tan. burning out it's fueling yeah. and refueling itself yeah. can, can i back up just a minute you talked about the cafe kitsch and how you thought maybe it was shot you know in this hallway yeah. from the high school it was in fact there's a moment when um Lisa and Sam arrive at the hospital. They pull up in the yeah. Studebaker to this hospital entrance. That is exactly where the cafe was. I, yeah, it has. Makes sense. <laughs> There's a few and that was, that That's just the soundstage. That's the soundstage. Oh, so they, I think they were quite economic yes. in using every corner of the soundstage. If you could see um, the blueprints, the plans of how the sets fit together, it was kind of like a puzzle. In fact, the, uh, the elevator that leads to Lisa's uh, apartment hallway is the same elevator oh, that leads backwards into Olander's yeah. uh, foyer. Interesting. So very economic. They're all kind of intersected and interconnected. Um, and that you know connects to Lisa's apartment, which spills out onto the, uh, the diorama of the, uh, oh. the nuclear power plant. And now I feel like I could sit down and draw a map of this place because I've seen <laughs> yeah. this movie so many times. I'm actually in my head like, picturing okay sorry that's Very a, that's a digression that can be i have to tell out. you most of that film was shot on uh this one soundstage yeah with a few exceptions um and occasionally they tear down a set for example the uh the conference room set in the 1950s mm -hmm. period when they're all yeah meeting together to decide the fate of the baby um that's just three walls set in the middle of the soundstage and they tore it down two minutes after they finished very economic gene able was the production designer. Yes. Um, spectacular, uh, brilliant man, really. He yeah, just... with a background in, in low-budget cinema. I recognized yes. his name from um, the Larry Cohen movie, Wicked Stepmother. I think he was art director or something on that. That's that's where I recognized him from. That sounds about right. But I was always impressed. We'd come in and, and of course, the set decorators did a bang-up job. Uh, I, I loved Nina's home. Uh, as opposed to Lisa's apartment. I think, yeah. I think they evoke the characters really lovely. Um, yeah, I can't say enough about uh, the production design. Let me go back real quick uh, to what Chris was saying about uh, the length of the, 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 the pain and the horror and the agony of the fire, <laughs> because it actually leads into a, a great, a great quote by Kiyoshi Kurosawa here, uh, where he's talking about the film. He says, it's true that in film, death is often confined to a few seconds, whereas in his film, Pulse, I tried to make it last, to turn it into a state, turn death into a state. I tried to represent this passage from life to death in an enduring way. 
This tendency of stretching time during death scenes is recurrent in horror movies. Toby Hooper does that too, but it's still relatively rare, I believe, in the work of American filmmakers to see characters taking time to die. In fact, it's the specialty of zombie films. And with Toby Hooper, it's related to the affection he develops for his characters. He just won't let them die and disappear too quickly. This is the case for Life Force as well as for Spontaneous Combustion. I think that's true. And I think it's um, demonstrated most obviously when um, Brian and Peggy are immolated. Yeah. yeah. It, just, it goes on forever. Um, it's, it's horrifying. It is. But, but let me tell you something. Not for me, not nearly as horrifying as the kind of clinical detachment of um, the military as they examine their bodies immediately following that scene. They're standing around uh, speaking, you know, kind of sardonically. Well, I was going to say, you know, but it's also beautiful again that yes. they them joining together in death is um, it's there's something intensely poetic about it. And I think if you cut away too quickly, like Kyoshi Kurosawa is talking about, then it then it loses its poetic intensity. It can only be beautiful by being sustained and forcing you to contemplate it rather than treating it as a plot point, as a little shock to goose things along. Like, and then these guys die, you know? If that was the only meaning of it, it wouldn't have its, uh, and I'm using the, the phrase beauty more in the sense of having some ineffable poetic quality to it more than like, oh, that's pretty to look at. That's not what I Lasting mean emotional quality yeah. to it, yeah. Exactly. I think it's appropriate, it's appropriate that Kurosawa would be attuned to that because I think that that moment um, is derived somewhat from the, the bombing of Hiroshima, where they found oh bodies. Oh my God, yeah. The people fused together. Yeah. Um, by the, the by famous the Hiroshima shadow, too, the radiation shadow of the two exactly. against the wall embracing. Yeah. And I'd like to I, actually, I want to give a shout out to Steve Neal, who was the makeup effects yeah. supervisor. And he he created those those blackened bodies. Um, Creator of Mac Tonight. Correct. <laughs> really? <laughs> and many, many others. Steve's a great sure. guy. He's another. I mean, I don't know. I can just go on and on. I could be effusive yeah. about virtually everybody on the on the this, uh, Now is the time. We love the, <laughs> the effusiveness. I also didn't mean to knock you off your position. I agree with you about what you were saying with the military looking at them afterwards. Do you want to mm -hmm. expand on that a little? Well, it's just um, they, they show no compassion for the loss of life. Um, or any indication that, except for Nina, of course, mm -hmm. she's exasperated. Um, you know, the, the general is more concerned with finding out what happened and I quote, how it can be repeated. Um, <laughs> but still, so Toby brings Andre to Toth onto the set oh. of all people to dig into the skull and bring, or to go dig into the head and bring out that tiny skull is such a jaw-dropping moment it is know? isn't it it's just and his, his his kind of delightful his delight with uh exposing uh <laughs> this this miniaturized skull he was i wish i had known more about him at the time uh, i knew that he had directed um um house of wax i think it is yeah. and and he was noted for being you know a, a one-eyed director who directed a three-dimensional film a 3d film yeah. um but he was really interesting to watch not an actor um, but he threw himself into it. Uh, he, he was sometimes difficult to understand, uh, but uh, he embodied that character. He, he, the strangeness of that character, that, that kind of 
you know, I think he's, uh, you know, a Werner von Braun surrogate. Yeah. Um, he, he played it to the hilt, especially well, you know the moment I, with the skull. He's directed some incredibly blackly cynical war movies too. To me, that also felt like a little bit of the perfect cameo casting of he has multiple Dr. Strange loves, you know, maybe not that overtly comedic, but something like play dirty is as cynical as a war movie gets, you know, and to have him come in to represent the military, I thought was, was the, 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 the callow indifference of the military uh, uh, in a sort of darkly comedic way. I thought it was brilliant. I thought there's nobody better for that. Yeah. Oh, I wish I had understood that more at the time. I, uh, I would have engaged with him, but, um, well, you know, Stan, when I read that part of your book where you said that you had the idea to ask Eric Lasher to get his 3D camera and take a picture of Toby and Andre together, and I immediately jumped on DM and was like, hey, did he do it? <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> so it never excited. happened. That's too bad. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Yeah, And he also, he also directed some great, now that I'm thinking about it too, some of the more um, cynical Westerns like Springfield Rifle and stuff like that, where he also... Uh, he, Ramrod exactly where where things are sort of the the um the meaning of authority is stripped bare in his movies in a lot of way that authority is just sort of exercising an empty uh pantomime of itself that authority does what it does because it's authority and it sort of doesn't know what else to do you know that that's something that you can see in these scenes too the what was that? How do we repeat it? That if you press these generals for what they want to accomplish with these experiments and controlling these people's lives, there's sort of no answer to that. It's just the emptiness of authority carrying out the, the like the zombified movements of authority. Authority does what it does because it's authority, not because there's a philosophy or an idea behind it. So you have these people that are sort of operating in a way that's that's inhuman and empty by virtue of their positions. And that's something that you see in Toth's films fairly regularly as well. Which makes him an appropriate choice for this role. Yeah. And I think I read, this is the um, only time he was on camera too, right? He never did cameos in his own films or anything. I had like no that. idea that was him until John told me. Oh, I had oh, no idea. Well, I don't, it's just, I had never... I didn't, I don't recognize him. I know like De Toth is a one-eyed, you know, uh, <laughs> that's, that's all director, I knew at the time. but he looks, if you showed me a picture of him and Fritz Lang and John Ford, I'd be like, <laughs> are they all John Ford? I wouldn't, I don't know what they look like well enough to immediately tell the difference between aging bald film directors with eye patches on them. He cuts quite so, a figure, doesn't he? He does. He, he does. really does. He, he just, um, and I love, yeah, his hammy glee is great in it. Yes. You know, he's definitely got that that director thrilled to be on camera uh, quality about him. That's, While we're that's talking about director cameos, let me just point out um, that Toby makes an appearance in the film, very, yes. however briefly. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, John cigar. Landis. John Landis mm -hmm. uh, as the hapless victim I was and, going to give props uh, to John Landis when we were talking about the agony of being burned alive. He does an amazing job. You know, I'm not his biggest fan, but I think that that performance is pretty dynamite. That was a fun day. Um, let me tell you, he had an interesting approach. He, he talked to us about working with uh, Aretha Franklin on the Blues Brothers. Mm 
and how she couldn't memorize lines. She wasn't an actress. So he would simply say the line and she'd repeat it and then say her next line and she'd repeat it. And that's what he had us do with him. Oh, the the script supervisor would say the line and he'd say it. Then she'd say the next line and he'd say it. And it worked brilliantly. (laughs) It does. He's great. It really does. Whose idea was the Twinkie? Uh, I believe that's in the script. I'm pretty sure that oh, that was Toby's idea. Yeah. And was it, and when and when uh, Toby was putting it together, how did did he say? Do you know if he had in mind? Oh, I'll have John Landis do this, and I'll have Andre de Toth do this, or was oh, I it doubt that. Some doubt kind that of coincidence much. about they were available. You want to come in do kind do this kind of thing. I mean, I can't say for certain, but I don't think the script was written with anyone in particular in mind. Yeah. Um, but once the script is complete and they start looking at their options, certainly, you know, uh, I'm sorry, John Landis was not how I envisioned the character yeah. when I read that that section in the script. But I think he's a terrific choice. Well, he and Toby had kind of a cameo merry-go-round going around, right? Because he did Coming to America. And Correct. Then, uh, Landis came over and did this. To tell though, is weird because it's like, how would he have gotten involved if Toby didn't have that specific idea? Like, get him on the phone, see if he wants to come down. It's seems strange like i doubt he was looking for <laughs> you know uh get me an appearance in a low budget horror movie if you can <laughs> i'm not sure how that went down but i suspect that somebody simply it's suggested brilliant it. however it happened it's oh it's brilliant. brilliant i love it and love in terms it. of performances uh we'll, we'll talk about brad duriff obviously but um that scene where the bells are burning to death melinda dillon's counterintuitive reaction spooks the hell out of me she doesn't look necessarily ups- she seemed upset but not like but maybe traumatized to a point where she's barely able to form a reaction it's a very strange shot of her watching this happen yeah Every i time think I she's, it, it's, she's yeah, both in noise. shock but not surprised because she knows the people she's dealing with yeah you know they you know they have no compunction and she knew that all along she you know she's been forewarning them just the way she's holding and, and baby she, up to her, her face. Well, she just, was certainly closer yeah. to, to them than anyone else. You know, she saw uh, young Brian Bell, uh, excuse me, young David Bell uh, at birth. You know, she cuddled him and cradled him uh, right out of the crib. So she had a connection to them that none of the other military characters uh, did or even could, I think. Yeah, so really interesting choices there, but uh, Brad Dourif, I think, obviously is a huge, huge, you know, part of what makes this movie special. Oh my god! Uh, just between his frustration over what the hell's happening, and obviously his, you know, intense agony over what's going on with his body, it's it looks exhausting to have to do that. And then, you know, of course, reading your book, knowing that these shoots went to four a.m. sometimes, where he's, you know, in that phone booth shouting into the receiver while he's supposed to be, you know, exploding from his different parts of his body just i can't imagine the kind of dedication that would those are incredible moments to witness um he was so dedicated so focused intense um as a person he was quite intense but not unapproachable um but he would you know when he's working stay out of his eye line he had an interesting uh tick that he would between shots he would prowl the soundstage and he would prowl around the the perimeter of the soundstage, walk along the walls, walk through the other sets, and just to clear his head, I think, you know, to focus his energies. And, you know, 
what can I say? He's Brad Dourif. He's he's amazing. He's a he's a force of nature. That says it all, right? He's Brad Dourif. What are you going to say? Yeah, he yeah. definitely is the the driving force of that film. I think that he makes it work. That whatever flaws it may or may not have, it can absolutely get over all of them because of him. I think if the lead performance, it all sort of doesn't matter because he attacks it so hard and does such a good job with it that it that it can that it works and it plays uh, at all times. He's me. utterly fearless. And he has, you know, he's not worried about looking silly. Um, and uh, at times he does. And for me, that works for the character. You know, it's awkward. It's, it's absurd. It's bizarre. How would you react? Um, yeah. He just goes there. Because there are not a lot of roles where the direction is okay you're having fire explode out of your arm. So go. <laughs> Action. Correct. <laughs> it was a delight um, to deal with him, to see him every day. Um, I had an, uh, an awkward moment with him. Once uh, between takes, we were kind of hanging out at the craft service table. And I mentioned uh, Kenneth McMillan had, had just recently passed away. Uh, and I mentioned that. I said, you know, I said, you must be, you know, uh, upset that Ken Millen passed and he hadn't heard oh, he hadn't no. known so I, I oh, actually man. told him that it was a very awkward silence they worked together on Dune they worked together on Dune correct yeah. very closely hmm. wow. um, and you had to but, be the bearer of bad news in this. yeah case. I didn't mean to do it and he understood <laughs> um, but it took him aback uh, just a just a great performer just uh, amazing I get uh, I could go on and on. So Chris, you, you had said that you see this as a love story. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really see it as a love story. I said earlier, mm-hmm. it's a story of betrayal. That's why I brought it up. I knew this was going to be a controversial thing. Yes, so yeah, I mean, and she is manipulating him from the, from the beginning. Um, and Toby does a very interesting thing that whenever she's caught in a lie, she turns her back to the camera. Um, interesting. You may or may not have noticed that. Um, she's a betrayer. She is... She, she may well be a victim as well. Uh, they say that she's a part of the project. She's another, uh, another experiment. By the way, there's a third. Well, uh, I, don't think some, I don't think a love story being a tragic love story disqualifies it from being a love story. I don't think, I wasn't joking before when I said that. I don't think that betrayal being an aspect of it uh, disqualifies it from being a love story. Maybe it disqualifies it from being a romance, but uh, I think that's, that this, a, that's a good distinction. That's an excellent distinction. That this is about his relationship to her, that again, he's the kindling, she's the fire, that there's something about, this is about their relationship and what she does to him. And his breakdown is in fact, he's sent off the rails by the betrayal, which she tries to drop on him way too casually in my estimation, it's it's a great it's a great joke on the idea of an exposition scene too, you know, to have that. Are we character. talking about the the bouquet of flowers and the card? Uh, no, in the uh, in the car when she's kind of trying to explain that she's been raised ah. by him by them as well. That uh, my parents didn't burn to death; they drowned. Exactly. But he's, um, she's trying to like drop the exposition, right? Like you would in a bad script to get everybody in the audience caught up to it. Only she's doing it to a character that it's going to impact incredibly 
right? And it's a funny narrative technique for the script to say, let's gloss over this because she wants to gloss over it. You know what I mean? It's a very funny way of inserting that exposition into your script. And he has the reaction of like, what are you doing? I can't just get over this. You know what I mean? As uh, he's exploding, you should yes. mention. Yes. <laughs> As, As flames are just filling the car left and right. Yeah. Well, I should point shooting out. Shooting out in little bursts at that point. <laughs> I should point out that that whole sequence was part of the reshoots. Interesting. So that wasn't oh, part okay. of the original script. So that was somebody saw a gap. Uh, an expository gap very likely yeah. and thought we need a sequence here um, in which you know they express their feelings for each other she comes clean uh, he reacts um, but it was kind of a you know a, a balancing act because they'd already shot what goes after you know they'd already shot what goes before so it has yeah. to fit kind of tightly into that little spot um, that's uh, actually I mean that's quite astute of you I think to notice that it's almost a purely expository scene. Yeah, but it's also played in an interesting way. What I mean beyond that, that it uses the nature of an expository scene to develop the character who's been uh, charged with delivering this exposition to demonstrate where she's at as a person. Because it's not a reveal to her. She's known this the whole time and she's freaked out about him bursting into flames because she thinks she might burst into flames. Where she's at in delivering this exposition is, is an entirely different place from him and him having to hit the brakes. Uh, and, you know, again, the flame sort of being stoked by it, I think is- I'm still, think not sure if at this, I'm still not sure if at that point she's aware of, you know, her, her being a victim. Yeah. You know, that she's, you know, like Sam, part of some greater experiment. Yeah. And so she may not fear, she fears for her own life being in his, you know, orbit, but yeah. uh, I don't think she knows quite yet yeah. exactly how dire it is. Sure. And I think that his reaction to her too, being, you know, that she is betraying him becomes even more powerful when you think about how wholesome the relationship between his parents are in the first 20 minutes of the movie and how there's such like an ideal fifties couple, you know, in this, uh, uh, leave it to beaver type, you know, couple. Uh, and then every person involved in the conspiracy has some kind of deviancy that's introduced, whether it's the ex-wife who he says, yeah, you used to see, uh, can't think of his name, Marsh, a lot. John back Marsh. when we were married. And then at the end, when Lou, the kind of orchestrator of this conspiracy, tells him, I launched, what does he say? I made the sun rise twice that day when he yeah. reveals that he's, you know, his father. He's the puppet master. Yeah, yeah. It's There's just a seediness to like every single character. So Sam's reaction to her being involved with those people, you know, this yeah. completely just disgusting, unwholesome group of people who are liars and betrayers. You kind of understand why his reaction as, is so extreme. As, as his parents were. His parents, as wholesome as they seemed, were also involved with the exact same group uh, or that certainly the lineage of those liars, if not mm -hmm. the exact same group. Of course, yeah. And well, certainly his, his father was. I mean, Olander tries to make Brian Bell kind of complicit in his plan because he paid him so much money in order to impregnate his wife, you know, kind of surreptitiously. So, mm -hmm. yes, they're, they're, you know, you lay down with dogs, you wake up with fleas, right? <laughs> exactly. 
Um, but it goes back to everything that Chris was saying too about the, um, you know, and, and you were saying stand by the sins of the fathers and the, the government, the things that are just become ingrained in, you know, being growing up as an American, Sam's got the, the perfect circle birthmark, right. That looks like a giant ink spot. And in fact, the ink spots are the, the group that do the song that we yeah, were just talking about. I don't, I... um, and then the merry-go-round that continues to go around even after it's been burned. It's just this circle that things are just going to end up the same, that this fear of Toby Hooper's, I feel throughout his films, this idea that everything is just rooted and you cannot change it. You know, things in society are just never going to change because these old cultures are so dominant that it kind of leads to what I want to kind of end up talking about, which is the idea that it'd be better if the world burned. Like there's a beauty to destruction, a poetry to destruction that Hooper sees, I think the idea of taking down the establishment that this film kind of, uh, ends up with at the end and even more so in the original ending which we'll talk about but i also i also i i i'm not sure i agree with that 100 percent. i think his biggest fear is dehumanization of people turned into meat of the merry-go-round that keeps going even after it's melted and lost its purpose and become warped of treating well, yeah i don't think that's disagreeing know? even i think that those things yeah. are related you know yes and i can i just say something about um, you mentioned circles and the carousel, the merry-go-round. Um, uh, Sam's first line in the film is a quote from King Lear. Um, By all the operations of the orbs from whom we do exist and cease to be. Orbs. orbs. That establishes a motif that repeats throughout the film of circles, the, the sun, the nuclear explosion, his birthmark, the pocket watch, uh, the crystal ball in Lisa's apartment. Um, Which is much more prevalent watch, in the, the original... Carousel cut right you barely see it in the finished version correct yeah um but that was definitely a motif that he established and that he continued throughout the film i love that aspect of it uh, because it somehow works uh subconsciously on your brain oh, without a doubt yeah yeah it's great and i'm going to throw in another uh kurosawa quote just because this is probably my favorite thing a director has said about another director's film and this is specifically about it being a love story he says, at the very end, we understand that the film is in fact a love story. All along, a very violent kind of love was being represented. This is something that I also had in mind while filming Pulse, in which I depicted it in a more tender or, let's say, less brutal way. At the end, we understand that the characters are trying to design for themselves an itinerary leading to love. And I inherited this intention directly from Toby Hooper. For me, Pulse is an homage to Hooper's work. If we examine this a little further, at the end of Spontaneous Combustion, we see a melting nuclear power plant. These images of destruction of meltdown have stayed in my mind during the filming of Charisma, at the end of which a tragedy occurs and the background of city is being demolished right there. That's the influence of Toby Hooper. And he also has said in different interviews, Life Force is a kind of film of an impossible love. When the couple manage to unite, the world disappears. And about spontaneous combustion, he says, an impossible romance in which this time the characters die without kissing. Well, that's oh. lovely. Love I have... That. Along similar lines, I always felt, and this is just me, I don't think it was ever a serious consideration, but I always felt that the film should end with the nuclear power plant exploding. It would, all is for naught, all yeah. is lost. Um, nobody really took to that idea. <laughs> but, well, it's, it's sort of how the original rough cut ends, right? I mean, more so than him saving her from the fire, the idea is- Well, that... he saves her in a different way. And then there's a <laughs> suggestion that you know, dangerous. The Trinidad is about to right that he's going down. to incorporate right exactly, but it's never expressly stated. Yeah, um, yeah, kind of a Return of the Living Dead finale. 
Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the rough cut a little bit because um, a film that I would, another film that I love that I would equate this one to is Wes Craven's My Soul to Take. Have you seen that one? I have not. It's so, it's another so, so weird movie uh, where it feels like there are things that are being purposely withheld and information that isn't being shared with the audience that makes it really interesting and mysterious. Uh, and again, I don't know what post-production stuff happened on that movie, but it's very similar in tone to, to spontaneous combustion. But some of the things that are left a little unclear in this and that are a little bit more clear in the rough cut, as we were already talking about Lisa's relationship with Lou Olander and the whole conspiracy, um, Jenny strikes who appears very briefly in the movie, putting Jennifer the, uh, planting the, um, Planting the hat box, uh, the, the watch, and yeah, watch. the hat box with the watch in the in the car, and then takes off. Um, and her name is Jennifer Strikes, which I just think is is hilarious. Um, and that's a very Cronenberg thing to do, I think. That is a very Cronenberg thing. There's a line I love that I'm absolutely going to steal since it didn't end up in the final <laughs> version, but it sounds like something out of Peeping Tom. It's when Melinda Dillon is showing him the footage of his father and his mother from when he was uh, before he would remember them, and he says those eyes my whole life i've had that image in my dreams and i thought it was a demon it was my father with his camera yeah they worked really hard to get that shot with uh uh brian bell turning the camera to the mirror and seeing the you know the two uh i don't know what you call them floodlights um but unfortunately it, it didn't seem to play and i think that's one of the reasons they cut that line of dialogue uh, from the film kind of truncated that whole sequence I can understand why, but it's such a beautiful line. It is beautiful. He, he delivers it so amazingly, so yeah. eerily. It's great. Yeah, it's lovely. I love that. Um, we see more of uh, the the flaming puppet, right? Created by Tony Hooper at the end. when he Yeah, so let me talk apartment. a little about Tony. Tony is yeah. an immensely talented individual. One of my best friends. He single-handedly did all of the mechanical effects on this film, uh, including the bodies that go up in flames, um, you, you've seen the rough cut, then you see there's a sequence where Marsh actually arises in flames from behind Lisa's couch. It's uh, amazing. It's shot. amazing. Yeah. Um, I am operating one of, you know, I'm partly operating that puppet and I'm kind of crouched in the corner behind this flaming, uh, <laughs> flaming body. It was, a, it was a, a harrowing moment. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> um, but Tony is is quite brilliant. The, I mean, the most striking effect, I think, is the uh, the flaming arm coming out of the mirror. Yeah, it's shocking. Uh, it's like, what is happening? How did that happen? How did they do it? Uh, to this day, I, I mean, I just like I said, I watched it today, and I just laughed. I giggled uh, because it's such a wonderful moment. So it's all such a Toby to Tony. moment too, when Absolutely. you connect it to the hand from Poltergeist reaching out, the hand from Salem's Lot that suddenly pops into frame. There's so many hands just of evil coming out in toby hooper's movies and even in this film all the posters the anti-trinidad posters have that giant hand on them that you're seeing throughout when he goes to the uh the water fountain to get a drink and the hand is right, exactly. just over his head like it's a baptism you know i really love that shot i just also wanted to say that in, in case you didn't know tony also designed the mangler yeah you know i know that but yeah that's yeah amazing. i know you know but maybe it was <laughs> yeah it's, no, a, no. it's a terrific uh piece of work it's incredible. But so for you, how does the rough cut compare to the finished film? Do you think that if they had stuck to that kind of idea more so than what they ended up with? Another great scene is Melinda Dillon in the hospital. Yes. That's a 
creepy scene where she's in a coma or she's dead, right? Well, there's a whole sequence. I mean, the film is truncated. There's a whole sequence where um, Lisa encounters Marsh. He tries to inject her. She runs out. Um, what happens then is she goes to Nina's house, finds her dead, takes her to the hospital, goes to the hospital, then returns to her apartment and encounters Marsh again. So there's you a huge see chunk. why this would all have to be <laughs> truncated somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they made a choice. Yeah, uh, and I, I think it works well. Um, I I love the extended cut, you know, such as it is. It's what I anticipated, you know, while reading the script and uh, and shooting. I had hoped when they announced that we were going to do reshoots, to some I think three months later, uh, that what they would do would take that time and expand on that and complete the sequence. Uh, as it should have been um, but they went a different direction you know they I think they wanted something more tactile uh, something less kind of philosophical and ephemeral you know because you know uh, I don't know how many people seen the rough cut I think it's available on YouTube um, but he's this you know he's kind of this wafting flaming presence rather than you know a tangible person and so I think they went that direction and they you know they dug in and uh, I, I like it. I love the film as it is. Um, I wonder what it might have been. Yeah, it's interesting to see the, the comparison between the two. Uh, another thing that I just want to bring up real quick, because it doesn't like the uh, Andre de Toth cam, it doesn't get brought up enough. That's Buck Flowers doing the voice on the radio of the evangelical priest, right? It is indeed. <laughs> That's his terrific. son, his son, uh, Marcus known as Rue on the set, Rue Flowers was uh, one of the grips on the show. Oh, wow. and, and of course, Toby had worked with Buck previously. Um, yeah, great voice. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it's very distinct. And I love bringing that into the film too, when we've already been introduced to the idea of Samson, you know, the, the mighty warrior who brought the house down on the Philistines, you know, is the, you know, the character that Brad Dorif explains. So there's already this kind of, ancient religions, religious sort of theme going on. Yeah, so. and I like how, how um, Brad seems to key off of Buck. I mean, obviously they didn't have that dialogue, you know, on set, but the way that it's edited, uh, sound edited, you know, it seems as though he's feeding him ideas, you know, and he's absorbing these ideas through the radio, which is another kind of a theme, you know, traveling through electronics and, um, you know, the, the detached nature of communications. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, they're exploring a lot of things. Toby was exploring a lot of things and he would just go wherever his, uh, his interest took him. Can I, this is a kind of weird question. Do you know if he had an interest in the real, quote unquote, real, uh, like unexplained phenomena of spontaneous combustion? Uh, he, he seems like a kind of guy who would have been interested in that kind of like, crypto scientific phenomenon or is that just a cool title that he thought of for this this script no he was very certainly interested in all types of paranormal phenomena um that would have been I, I point out again you know that he took it in a completely different direction Absolutely. i've read i've read the fire from heaven um which is the book that they referenced yeah um, which is what spontaneous combustion was originally called was fire correct from heaven. Yeah. Correct. And it's interesting, but it, again, it suggests more to me a kind of a detective story, you know, with inexplicable fiery deaths. Yeah. Um, he took this concept 
and and in, infused it with his own social critique. Yeah. And it's it's unique. This film is unique. This film to me is as unique as Life Force. And Life Force is you don't get more unique than Life Force. <laughs> quite frankly, there are few films you can compare it to. I, so, and I think that's what brings from his mind. Yeah, 100%. So when the film came out, um, because it's funny because when I talked to Karen uh, Berger, who at the time was married to Toby and worked mm-hmm. on the costume design on this film and on I'm Dangerous Tonight, when I interviewed her about that, the latter movie, she made it sound like coming off of this film was like really rough for Toby. Like it was a real letdown and disappointment that he was really affected by its getting sent direct to video and everything. Did you get that impression yourself? Or it's hard to imagine because from your book, it just sounds like such a great experience making this film. It was a great experience. I I can understand maybe his being disappointed at its reception or lack of reception. Um, You know, there's a lot of derision pointing out the film. It was dismissed, basically. Um, It's it's also not, it's, it's the nail in the coffin of him as being a big time director like it's it's the movie that sort of sends him to sort of direct a video semi-theatrical purgatory i know he gets to make the mangler which gets a theatrical release but this movie is really the beginning of a new phase in his career there's no question uh he must have had some sense of that especially when you begin by saying he couldn't get arrested if, you know when he went to make this movie the, this movie I think is is a big change for him in some way in terms of how he's perceived within the industry or uh, not if not a change then like the the capstone to to what's been happening to his reputation right or no um i'm not so sure he saw it that way um for me and toby was a man who loved making movies and his entire life he would seize any opportunity whatever resources he had at hand to make a movie, you know, whether it's a Super 8 film as a child, an industrial film in college, commercials, documentaries, um, you know, he, he cobbled together the resources to make Chainsaw Massacre, he had a huge hit, suddenly he had greater opportunities, he seized on those. Um, of course, the Canon films came along and he, here's 25 million bucks, <laughs> and he just seized on it. And so any situation he happened to be in, he wanted to make movies. And if he could only raise four and a half million dollars or he, you know, he was offered uh, the pilot for Freddy's Nightmares, um, he's going to he's going to take it because he wants to make movies. That was his goal yeah. in life. And um, I, I don't think he saw his career in those terms. Yeah, that's great. Like, Where's hear. my opportunity? That's, that's great to hear, especially, you know, you know what huge fans we are of I'm Dangerous Tonight. It's yeah. always crazy to me to hear people not get as excited about that movie as we are because to not even be aware he, of it. He brought his Toby Hooper to that. That's movie, not surprising you know? because he, it, it didn't get distributed. Yeah. Right. But even like after they've seen it, they're like, ah, it's minor Toby Hooper, whatever. And it's like, I, from the, be- <laughs> from the beginning of his career to the end, I see the Toby Hooperness that he brings to these films. He, yes. If, if he was affected by a disappointing box office or what, you know, uh, insinuations were made about him or if, what, what direction his career was going, it's not evident on screen because there's always that uniqueness and enthusiasm in every single one of these films. Absolutely. That is I don't think so he ever lifting to me. Um, yeah. 
I don't think he ever, um, this is the word I'm looking for, compromised creatively. Yeah. I think he compromised, um, you know, financially and, you know, with whatever circumstances dictated, but uh, he was always enthusiastic, always interested, um, always um, engaged. I wish you guys could have seen him on the set. He was just, he was like a pixie in a, you know, in a fantasy land. It's good to hear because there's such a, a a picture of him that's presented as being a constantly beleaguered filmmaker. Yeah, you know? not at all. Not at all. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah, and the book, Charred Remains, I mean, you, talk, you, you speak specifically to Toby saw this as an interesting thing to do. Toby saw this as a thing to change because it would be different. You just paint the portrait of a man whose mind is just constantly creative constantly reworking ideas and making things more interesting and uh, which amusing. Course, you know yeah which from the pr department of course is not what we get at all we hear he was the guy who let spielberg call action and all this complete bullshit you know you just he had eaten alive taken away from um right. nobody thought he knew what he was doing on texas chainsaw mask you know all of these different stories you know that that the canon films got away from them and were interfered by by you know, Golan Globus, all of these well, stories a lot of those things here. retrofit, you know, in yeah. retrospect, you know, after the poltergeist debacle, um, you know, it should the have debacle been greatest... that resulted in a phenomenal movie. Correct. Correct. <laughs> um, for which he should have, you know, garnered all the credit he deserved. Um, hit that a bit. T- I, I think there was probably some bitterness about that um, because he knew what his contribution was. He knew what he did. He was involved. I don't want to go off on a tangent about Poltergeist, but he was involved. Yeah, it was his idea to do a ghost story. He, he, you know, he partnered with Spielberg, and they, you know, worked out the particulars together. So, and the one time I got to meet Toby Hooper, I got to say to his face, "Hey, man, we we know what you did in Poltergeist. We know that that's your film." It made me feel so good to say that to his face, and I hope that more people got to tell him that while he was alive, because yeah, certainly. his contribution I, I is insurmountable to, to, to cinema in general. I mean, now, I I don't think now I you just need to say to, to Zelda Rubenstein's face. I would love to have said that to <laughs> Zelda Rubenstein's face. Um, and we're in a, we're in a, we're in an era, I feel, of great reappraisal of this work, as I already mentioned. Uh, and this year alone, we're getting two new books on on Toby coming out: the uh, uh, Scout to Foya book, and then. Um, a uh, collection of essays called American Twilight, the cinema of Toby Hooper are on their way out. So yeah, in between fact, that American and Char Remains, you know, it's just great to get all of this new appreciation of him. American Twilight will be featuring some excerpts from my book. Oh, great. Excellent. Which, yeah, I'm very, very uh, thrilled about that. Scout Tafoya's book, which uh, I'm going to mangle the title. I think it's called Cinemophagy. <laughs> That's a, that's I don't know how to pronounce it either. I don't either. Uh, but Scout, he's awesome. The book is wonderful. Um, he, if more than anything, he at least addresses films and projects that haven't even been addressed before. Certain television um, projects that nobody knows of. Um, so for that reason alone, it's worth a read. But uh, for many other reasons, not the least of which is that he's a wonderful writer. Yeah, uh, I would definitely suggest it. And while American Twilight, I haven't seen a page of it yet, um, I have very high hopes. Yeah, they've got some good writers working. Oh, yeah. So very excited for that, too. And the last thing I'm going to say about spontaneous combustion is because I like to bring this up. It, it, it could have saved lives and it's on 
it's evidenced on film because in the American version of The Ring, I don't know if you're aware of this, Stan, when Naomi Watts goes <laughs> oh, to yes, pick absolutely. a movie. It's on yeah, the shelf. Yeah, she, when she goes to pick a movie for the night, the hotel she's in, you can see spontaneous combustion yep. right there, right next to the that. cursed videotape. If she had watched Toby Hooper instead, she could have avoided all of that. <laughs> it's a movie that can literally save lives, what I always lives. like to say about it. Can I say I, one thing? That Stan, yeah, really please, addressed. go right ahead. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to talk about Levy Isaacs, who was the director yes. of photography. Uh, now, job. Levy was a longtime friend of Toby's. They knew each other in Texas. In fact, you may or may not know this, he was the voice of the radio newscaster in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh. Yeah, he's on the radio in the van. Interesting. Literally the first person you hear in the movie. Correct. Um, wonderful gentleman. Terrific director of photography. I think, you know, the evidence is right there. Spontaneous. It's a beautiful film. Beautifully composed. The, the images are rich and the movements are smooth. It's... He is, I can't say enough about him. He also shot I'm Dangerous Tonight. Which is also beautiful looking. Toby's episode of uh, Tales from the Crypt, Dead Weight. Uh, he was, in fact, he was an alternating DP on Tales from the Crypt for a couple of seasons. Uh, he would shoot an episode, another DP would shoot another one, he would shoot one. Uh, and he was a DP on Malcolm in the Middle and even directed a few episodes. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Levy because he is uh, just the kindest gentleman you'd ever care to meet i'm glad you did because we were talking about all the beautiful shots in this film and then i kept saying we should we can't forget to mention him uh thank <laughs> you for bringing that up any last thoughts on well, spontaneous combustion stand before i'm sorry chris go ahead oh i did uh, as with your absurd final thought on this before we go i did just want to mention something i've been obsessed with for years there's a very successful and popular video game franchise called fallout that I think is hugely indebted to this movie, not for the least of which the theme song of those video games is the Ink Spots, I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire. They're about a post-apocalyptic nuclear wasteland and the opening shots of the the next generation consoles Fallout 3 game is a close-up of a light that's out of focus that comes into focus while I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire is playing, which you might recognize as the same opening shot of this movie of spontaneous combustion. Mm. And then it's all about people living in the fallout shelters after it, you know, like the two main characters of these movies immediately live in a fallout shelter and then going out into the world uh, that's been sort of poisoned by all of the nuclear activity. And it has a very um, similar cheeky retro futuristic aesthetic like the beginning opening sequence of this of this film does and i think it has to be an influence on it uh i just can't imagine that the people who who made those games weren't familiar with this it's just it's it's an improbable coincidence and uh in a funny way those games are so massive it feels like that's a funny uh, cultural legacy for this very disrespected movie to have in a lot I of ways. I certainly hope that's true. I, I would love for that to be true. The opening shot is the same of the both of them. Same soundtrack, same shot, uh, all of it. And well, speaking uh, of the opening shot, do you, do you see the genie in the bottle? If you go back and look at it, the image inside the light bulb looks like clearly a resembles a genie cross-legged. Uh, and I urge you or to a check gin. that out. A gin, perhaps. <laughs> oh, interesting. Let me do a little self-promotion here. Absolutely. Yeah. Do um, a lot of self-promotion. Just a little bit. Um, my book, Charred Remains, 
may well be published this year. It's still very much up in the air, but we're working on making that happen. And I wanted to say that um, my hands are Brad's hands in many of the insert shots in the film. When we did pickups, I oh, stood in for Brad's hands. So when he's opening the hat box on the car seat, when he's opening the envelope at home, when he's uh, dialing the radio. I noticed those, those his are my hands, hands look notably masculine. In fact, you see, in the, <laughs> you see in my inserts. hand Very well before manicured. you see him. Oh, really? Yeah, so my hand is this large shot of the birthmark and the glitter. He's holding the script above his head to keep the glitter from falling on his head. My hand. Easy hands. <laughs> That's excellent. Any last thoughts about this movie? We're going to let you have the last word on this, sir. Me? Yeah. Hmm. I will, I'm going to correct you. Your quote when... Um, Rachel and Sam are in the cafe kitsch. Sam says to her, you used to bump into each other a lot bump when we were married other. too. <laughs> and I always like that, the suggestiveness of that phrase. Excellent. Delivery. Thank you so much for doing this episode and coming oh. on here to talk to us. We're obviously- Thank you uh, for having me. Big fans of, of Hooper and the movie and love love hearing the, the behind the scenes stories. And I appreciate that. And we didn't really talk about reevaluating um, like I thought we might, but yes, uh, many its value is self-evident. I think to so us. too. I think you know anybody listening, check it out. Uh, it will pay massive dividends. It's a film that you know I've always enjoyed, but I feel like I like it more every time I see it. I feel like it's rewarding, constantly rewarding from multiple it is viewings. it is genuinely implacably weird in the best toby hooper way that that it is an expression of his uniqueness as an artist uh which manifests in this intense weirdness in this film uh in the way it does i think that that mentioning it in the context of life force i think that's sort of the twin star in his filmography to it that life force and this movie somehow feel like they're uh orbiting around each other in some way and yeah, that's a great way to put it and i think that um I, I think that they are this film in particular is evocative of toby's sensibility far more than texas chainsaw massacre if you look at it <laughs> in the context of his career his films are, are more bizarre, <laughs> more pointed, more unusual, more challenging um, than, you know, than Chainsaw is. You know, I'm not tr trying to denigrate that film. It's genius. But if you look at the, you know, the arc of his career, he gets stranger and stranger and stranger yes. in the best possible way. It's a I great agree. way to put it. Stan, thank you so much for talking to us, man. I always, it's always a pleasure. I'm glad that I'm glad you came into my life and that I've gotten to have conversations with you about all sorts of stuff. I'm always very, very appreciative of that. But well, anytime when we sit down to, to talk, Toby especially, absolutely love it. I think we should plan to do a, uh, a spontaneous combustion commentary. Let's do it. I'm because up for I it, have sir. a lot to say. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> that absolutely, it's put that in the works. All awesome. Right. Very nice meeting you, Chris. Very nice meeting you, finally. I've obviously had so much relayed from John as a go-between, so it's great to finally get to meet you and speak to you directly. Thank you. I appreciate that. Excellent.